Good evening. We welcome those of you who are away on retreat back home. And for those of you that are just passing through, we bid you Godspeed on your journey to get to where you're going. But we're thankful that you stopped on our path tonight to be here to worship with us. I want to uh, inform the congregation and I suppose any visitors that might want to help have an opportunity that you'll have later this month to be of service. Um, Sister Her Helen Erickson, who's not with us uh, this week, uh, is moving in town from one place to another. And on Thursday the 13th has asked for our assistance in making that possible. And so um, if you're not working or can rearrange any kind of schedule that you have, uh, spend a part of the morning or the afternoon helping us. I believe that we're going to try to use the, the church trailer to help out. And so if someone wants to pull that, that would be great. And someone who might could back that in to where she's moving into would be even better. So uh, see me if you have any questions, but we would love for you to help. And I know that she would very much appreciate that. That will be Thursday the 13th of February. I know that retreat went well. I've heard some conversation about it already. And I look forward to, to uh, hearing more stories. I know there were two responses, uh, both connected to this congregation, so we're thankful for that. I have no doubt with Justin's preaching that there were more than two responses. There were just two that were, that were visible uh, and audible to those that were around. And so I know that it was a beneficial weekend. I know your eyes might be heavy, and I understand that. I try to take that into account every retreat Sunday night, whether it be our high school or our college students as they get home. But... We're in the midst of a study on Sunday evenings in great prayers of the Bible. And we're going to continue that study tonight. But just for explanation to our visitors that are with us tonight, or maybe those of you who have forgotten, uh, maybe don't attend on Wednesday nights, but we use the sermon as a way of introducing this particular prayer and encouraging us to be able to pray that prayer. And then we come back on Wednesday night and we study through that prayer a little bit, a little bit more. And we answer some, some questions and dig a little deeper uh, into that in our Wednesday night Bible class. And so tonight, our prayer comes from the book of Revelation. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them there. And there are a couple of different titles that we could give uh, to this prayer. We've looked at prayers of uh, desperation and prayers of depression and prayers of joy and prayers of praise. Um, I think there are two different designations, and I'll let you choose which one you want to attach to this prayer that we're going to consider. It could be called a prayer of finality. A prayer of finality, and it really is, and we'll deal with that uh, tonight and then uh, a whole lot more on Wednesday evening. But also, it could be called the prayer that no one prays. The prayer that no one prays. Now, before we look at the prayer, and actually that prayer has already been read in our hearing tonight as, as it's one of the last phrases or verses found in the revelation as given uh, by John. But before we do that, I want us to consider a couple of things and then... Uh, look at some things about the book and then we'll eventually get to that great prayer and uh, how it is uh, that John came about to pray it. And then uh, hopefully as time permits tonight and Wednesday that we'll look at how we might can pray the same prayer. Here are the couple of things I want us to consider. First of all, uh, Revelation chapter 6 verses 9 through 11. I believe, and by the way, we usually conduct this more as a Bible class rather than a, a necessarily a, a sermon. And so um, not that I'm asking for questions, but just to let you know, that's generally the way that we approach uh, the Sunday evening together. I believe that, that Revelation 6, 9 through 11 is the key section in the book. Obviously, it's one of the most difficult books in the New Testament to understand. 
certainly with the symbolism and the, and the time references that, that, that we're not aware of or we don't have full information about, that sometimes we can get lost and even confused in the imagery that's given there. But I believe that the book was written because of the cry in Revelation 6, 9 through 11. Then he opened the fifth seal and I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. And a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they would rest a little while longer but until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren would be killed as they were, or as they were, was completed. Your take could be different, and your studies could have led you down a different path. I believe the book was written to answer the question, how long? How long until you avenge our blood? It's written in a time of great persecution, and as the revelation unfolds, it reveals that there will be even greater persecution in the coming days. And those who had already died a martyr's death, and those who were imprisoned who would later die, and those who had not yet been arrested but would be arrested and then would die, would be crying out from the altar, when is it going to be over? When are we going to win? Isn't that the story of Christianity? God wins every time. His people will always be vindicated. That, that, that sin will never defeat goodness and that righteousness will always overcome. And that's one of the key phrases or words in the book is overcoming. Don't we believe that? Didn't they believe that? And the question was, listen, in the midst of all this, when is that going to happen? And this book is written to identify when it would be and how it would come to pass that the souls of those under the altar would be vindicated and that victory would come to God's people And so in order to facilitate the conclusion of that question, there were a set of words that were used. And we don't have time tonight. It's not our our intention and purpose to simply introduce the book of Revelation. But there are some words that are used that we can key in on. One of those words is the word erkomai in the Greek. It's translated coming or going or arriving or departing. It's used some 64 times in its root form in some fashion in the book of Revelation. And as you look through the times that that word is used, you can see a, a building process. You can see an anticipation that there's been a, a time stamp placed and, and soon he will come and they will be vindicated. He will arrive and they will win. He will appear and they will overcome. You go all the way back to chapter 1. Look, look at chapter 1 in verse 4. Let's look at some of these passages. Chapter 1 and verse 4, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from he, notice this, who is and who was and who is to come from the seven spirits who are before the throne. Drop down in chapter 1 to verse 7 beginning. Behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord. He who is and who was... And who is to come, the Almighty. Turn over to chapter 3 and verse 11. In chapter 3 and verse 11, again, he begins this statement by saying, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have, that no one may take your crown. Again, over in chapter 4 in verse 8. Now the, the scene has changed. It's no longer the vision of Christ or the letters to the churches. Now it's the throne room scene of chapters 4 and 5. And in that throne room scene, the four living creatures, verse 8, having six wings... 
who were, who were full of eyes around and within. They did not rest there night saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who is or who was and who is and is to come. Now that language is sprinkled throughout the next 10 chapters or so in various forms, but almost subtly. And then it picks up steam again. Look at chapter 14 and verse 7. Chapter 14 and verse 7. Just a few more of these references. Saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. And worship Him who has made heaven and earth a sea and the springs of water. One thing that, the, that John will do in the Revelation as the vision is given and he's recording is he will attach battle and victory and judgment and vindication to this idea of the arrival or the appearance or the coming of the Christ. And here he does, in the hour of, the ju- of his judgment has come. Verse, chapter 16 and verse 15. Here he gives us some more detail. We've heard this before in the New Testament, but for the first time in the book of Revelation. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And then turn to the very last chapter. Revelation chapter 22. And notice there, there are three very clear, concise promises. 22 verse 7. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Twenty-two, twelve. and behold, I am coming quickly. And my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. 22 and verse 20. He who testifies of these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. If you can feel the, the, the build and the anticipation and, and, and the crescendo of this book, it asks the question, when, how long, will we, when will we win? When will we overcome? When will we be victorious? And Jesus said from the beginning, I am coming. I'll be there. I'm going to appear. I'm going to show up. My judgment's going to be with me. With me. I'm going to battle. I'm going to fight. I'm going to defeat I'm coming quickly, I'm coming quickly, I'm coming quickly. And then immediately on the heels of that, John prays. Even so, Lord, come. That's the prayer that no one prays. That's the prayer of finality. And all the prayers that we've considered in this quarter of study, and we've got just a few weeks to go in it, I believe that most of us somewhere along the way have prayed those prayers. You ever prayed the prayer of... of Elijah under the juniper tree, depressed and discouraged? Maybe not with his exact words, but we've prayed those prayers. He ever prayed the prayer in the garden when we knew God needed us to do something, but we thought there might be a better way or a different way, and prayed, could, could we please do something else? Haven't you prayed a prayer of praise and thanksgiving for what God's done, a, a prayer of forgiveness or repentance that God would forgive, as David did in, in Psalm 51? We've prayed all those prayers. Have you ever prayed this? Have you ever asked the Lord to return? Because I believe it takes a tremendous amount of faith and a tremendous amount of trust and a lack of connection to and trust in stuff here to pray that prayer. Now, I believe that the question has to be asked, at least briefly, about the contextual question. Is John really asking for the Lord to return and for everything to be over and I'm not sure that's what he's asking for remember this is when we vindicate those under persecution depending on your interpretation of the book of Revelation this could be and at least in my estimation is the persecution under Rome 
Some believe it's the persecution that's given by the Jews in Judaism, and they will, it will end at AD 70. But it is a, a, a particular persecution that they're dealing with in their lifetime that at some point in, in the generations that unfold beyond them will be defeated. And it didn't take Christ coming back and judging the world to do it. It took Christ taking someone off a throne, someone out of power, someone out of the seat of authority to accomplish. But friends, the application rings loud and true about our desire for God to defeat our enemies and vindicate our righteousness and answer our cries and our pleas. So what is it that made John pray this prayer? Turn back, all the way back to chapter 1. And I would say look again because I'm assuming that most of us have read it before, but for tonight, for the first time, at how this book starts. John's identified as the writer. He's on the Isle of Patmos. He has been banished there because of the persecution of his day, because of his faith, because of his preaching. The first thing that happens before John hears any letters written to the churches, before John sees any visions of a throne room, before John is, watches as the, the bowls of wrath are poured out and the seals are undone and the dragon is defeated, before any of that, you know what John sees? He sees Jesus. Look at verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke to me. And having turned, I saw seven lampstands. In the midst of those seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with the garment down to his feet and girded about his chest with a gold band. His head and hair were white as wool and, and white as snow. And his eyes flamed like a, as fire. His feet were like fine brass and it was ref, and a, as a refined furnace. And his voice was the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand the seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet dead, or as dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. You see, before John ever saw the vision unfold, and before John ever was made aware of the great persecution that was lying ahead, before he ever heard the souls under the altar cry out, he saw the one who held the keys to death and Hades. He saw the one who was dead and alive again. He saw the answer to all of their struggles. What else would he pray? You see, when you read the book of Revelation, you read that John saw and John looked and John heard, and again, John saw, and John looked, and John heard, and again, John saw, and John looked, and John heard. It's not until Revelation 22 that he speaks. And what does he say in the conclusion of all this? Let it happen exactly the way you said, and let it happen sooner than later. Now, when it comes to our understanding of the end of time as per the rest of the New Testament, there's going to come a day when Jesus is going to come and judge the world. The earth's going to be burned up. We're going to be caught up to meet him in the air. Every man's going to receive according to the things done in his body in that day of judgment and ushered into paradise, ushered home to be with him or away from his presence for eternity. And we should pray about that day. A prayer of finality. Even so, Come. Because you see, the things that led John to pray that prayer lead us to pray this one. I'll just suggest three to you. After he has seen the, the magic 
Why would John pray this prayer? I believe, number one, he prayed it because he was tired. He was tired. He was tired of sin. He was tired of sickness, sorrow. He was tired of death and bloodshed. He was tired of war and violence. You see, there was a promise littered throughout. Jeremy prayed about that, that promise that, of, of a place where there's no death and no pain and no sorrow. John, John saw that. But friends, he saw it in a vision, in a distance. He wanted it in the immediate. And he knew the return of Jesus, the, the victory that comes with that return, the one whose, whose eyes are flaming fire and a, and a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, that one would bring to about a time a situation where sorrow would be no more. He was tired of it. And he prayed for Jesus to come. You know, we're not going to pray the prayer that no one prays until we're tired of it. Until we're tired of sin and sorrow and death. And I know at least three families connected to this congregation just this very weekend that are tired of death. Right? We know that. And perhaps those of us in recent months and in recent years have been as tired. But you know, sometimes the weariness of death fades when it doesn't directly affect our family for a few months or a few years. Because we live in a world that is, that is literally filled with death all the time. From, from the, the most elite and popular and rich among us, to those that we've never met or known. And quite frankly, we should be tired of it because it's our last enemy. And it is that. It's our last enemy. And when we're tired of death and sorrow and sickness and pain and tears, we'll pray, Lord, come. But not just tired of death, but tired of sin. Tired of the saints being mistreated. Tired of it looking like evil is winning. Tired of, of, of righteousness not prevailing and not being exalted. See, there's going to be a place where only righteous, righteousness and righteous people dwell. In the home beyond. The sin has to be defeated. And we won't pray that prayer until we get tired of it. Until we get tired of seeing it and hearing about it. And see its impact on our family and our friends, and our churches, and our communities, and our nations. John prayed that prayer because he was tired. Number two, he prayed that prayer because he was scared. Now, I know the Lord said when he saw him, don't be afraid. But what he meant was, don't be afraid of me. Chapter one. But there were things he was afraid of throughout that book. The uncertainty of how widespread that persecution was going to be and how many were going to be killed, who, uh, what other souls were going to be slain and their blood spilled under the altar. Will it get worse? You know, I think we can identify with that. We're not in the midst of persecution and bloodshed. But the wickedness is so pervasive in our society today that we lament often the downfall of our nation. We pray about it. We preach about it. Talk about it. And the uncertainty, the question lies, will it get worse? And what we want is we want to fix at the level of government. How about just praying the Lord return? That fixes it all. Don't worry about it beyond that. In fact, I would dare say the church prays more prayers 
specifically about leaders at the local and and national level than they do this prayer. Because if he returns, I don't have to worry about that. The uncertainty is over because everything beyond that moment is fixed and sure and right and good for the righteous. John prayed that prayer because he he was scared. And I would say, number three, he prayed that prayer because he was impatient. Friends, I would submit to you there's nothing wrong with that. He didn't want to wait anymore. Ever felt that way? There's a game on tonight, right? I'm recording it, and I'm anticipating watching it. But there may be some here tonight who are so impatient, you've already checked the score three or four times since I've been preaching. I didn't see you, by the way. I'm just assuming that. Nothing wrong with impatience to a certain degree and a certain level. Certainly not when it comes to the end of sin and sorrow and death and, and, and sickness. Now, I'm not suggesting the Lord's going to answer this prayer of John or our prayer in preempting his plan because we're impatient. But impatience should lead us to pray it. Well, there are a lot of solutions for the world's problems. And there are a lot of ways out of the mess we found ourselves in on a number of levels. But the end-all answer is just go home and let the Lord return. And I think sometimes our impatience ought to get the best of us. And our prayers ought to be just, just come back, just return. Now, what we're going to do Wednesday evening is sort of look at some things that keep us from praying that prayer finality. But for tonight, I'll just simply ask you this as we close. Can you pray John's prayer? With confidence, with assurance. Is it right in your life? Is your soul where you can pray that prayer with a comfort level, with a straight face? Or is it possible that the reason we don't pray that prayer is not because we don't think about eternity, is that we don't want to think about judgment that precedes it? If that's the case with you tonight, I don't ask that question to embarrass you or necessarily to scare you, but to simply say, then let's fix that. So you can pray that prayer. Jesus was the answer to all of their problems. He's the answer to this one. He says, come to me and I will forgive you. I will redeem you. I will buy you back. I will adopt you into my family with my blood. That's not where you are tonight. Get there. He's made the the overture. He's extended the invitation. We'll just reiterate it to you. He wants you to confess your faith in him, repent of your past sins. Confess the faith that you have in him before witnesses and be immersed in water. That your sins might be forgiven. And there's no easier time to pray that prayer than just after baptism. Because all may not be right with the world, but all is right between you and him. But maybe you have been baptized, and I think that describes the majority of us in here tonight. But you still can't pray that prayer. It's not because his blood isn't powerful. It's not because he doesn't want to forgive you. It's because you've made a choice to be somewhere other than where he's at. Will you correct that tonight? Will you come home? And not because you anticipate that tonight will be your last, but because you realize no one's promised tomorrow.
And when he does return, we will not have the opportunity we've been given tonight. Take advantage of it. Come home to him. We can help. Come while we stand and sing.